Thanks for joining the Capital Church podcast channel. For more resources and to learn more about Capital Church, please visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. Uh, how many of you were here last week? Okay, a few of you were here last week. I want to thank my father, Pastor Ken, for preaching uh, for me. He, uh, he talked a little bit about planting yourself. You remember that? And uh, so I, I don't want to, like, uh, rehearse what he said, but I want to add just a little bit about uh, some of my thoughts about uh, what he talked about last uh, week. So we're in our Social Kingdom series and uh, if you brought your Bibles, you can turn quickly to Genesis chapter 2. We'll get into the text here really quick. If you didn't bring your Bibles, that's totally fine. We'll have the Bible up behind me. And uh, we'll get into the message really quick. Uh, so the next month, we're going to be talking maybe a little bit more. We're going to be talking about uh, belonging and being a part of a community. How many of you want to have deeper relationships? Okay. About eight of you. All right. I, honestly, guys, I love you guys so much. I feel like first service gets offended at my jokes, but you guys don't get offended at my jokes, okay? I love you guys. But this is Genesis chapter 2, 4 through uh, 15. So I'm going to read just a chunk of the second account of the creation story. So we begin in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the heaven or the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, there was no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. So we have space. Everyone say space. So we got a lot of space, right? How many of you like your space? Do we have any close talkers? Are you a close talker? How many of you cannot stand close talking? Not close talkers, but close talking, right? Um, I'm, I just like my space. And we're going to be talking about space and place and how, the, how Scripture values place over space. Anyways... For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Verse 6. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Verse 7. And the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a what? A living creature. Verse 8. And the Lord God planted. Everyone say planted. How many of you believe in being planted? We believe in being planted. Like, what does that even mean? I'll, I'll describe that. The Lord God planted a garden in the, Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Verse 9, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight, good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. Verse 10, and there it divided and became four rivers. And the name of the first is, uh, we'll say Pishon, right? It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. Go to verse 12, and the gold of the land is good, and we have that and that stone are there. The name of the second river is uh, Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. Verse 14, and the name of the third river is the Tyrus, which flows out of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. We come to verse 15, then the Lord God took the man and put him or placed him. Everyone say place and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Then we go to Genesis chapter 3 really quick. We're just going to read just a few verses, then we'll pray. This is verse 1. Then we have the serpent, this shadowy figure. We'll call him, the Hebrew calls him Ha-Satan, the Satan, 
So you have this shadowy f- figure, and the Hebrew is kind of a sorcerer. Comes, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Verse 3, but God said you should not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Verse 5, for God knows. Here's this kind of primal um, temptation. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like who? You will be like God. So we have the temptation of unlimited freedom, right? Autonomy. No one gets to, no one, no one gets to say what, uh, what I'm supposed to do. Knowing good and evil. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Verse 7, the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, right? And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. We close here, verse 9, just two more verses, three. But the Lord God, or maybe four or five, who knows? But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Verse 10, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. See, this is what happens when you're offered unlimited freedom. It leads to fear. And I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Verse 11, we close. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? There's so much in this that we could talk about. But we're going to be talking about place and space and freedom. Are you ready for it? All right, bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, I thank you for... Uh, your presence today. Lord, we just thank you that you are, you are here. Lord, we, we thank you for summer, and we thank you for sunshine, and we thank you for pools. We also thank you for safety. Lord, we thank you for barbecue. Lord, we thank you for all the good things that you've given us. But Lord, I ask in this moment that you would come and that you would speak to your sons and daughters. Lord, show us, show us how, not just today, but over the next few weeks, show us how to live life together. Lord, we want to be faithful to the call of being the church in a world that needs you desperately, in Jesus' name. So I thank you, Father, you would come and encourage everyone in this room, in the mighty name of Jesus, and everyone said, amen. All right, I want you to, I want you to talk to me here. This isn't intended to be rhetorical. Pastor Ken Last week talked about uh, planting, right? We talked a little bit about placing yourself. We have an emergency. See you guys. I'm out. Good, good luck, guys. Um, but uh, he, he talked about planting and uh, being a part of a community. How many of you were blessed by that? All right. Is that noise gone? Is that demonic noise? It's in my head now. All right. It's gone. Good. Um, so he talked, he talked about um, being a part of a local church, right? And we believe this. He, uh, he did a great job of, of talking about kind of painting a, a vision of that. I do think as Americans, and we're all like this. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're 15, 25, 50, whatever. Just kind of go with me. Um, but I think when it, when it comes to community, we kind of have a, an unequal, maybe lopsided relationship with community. We want it, but we don't. 
right? We want to be a part of a community, but it, we, we kind of want to be a part of a community on our own terms, right? Because we're Americans. We got our guns. We have our freedom, right? We just do whatever we want. We go to the mountains. We camp, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, we value space. And so when you have being planted in community for some people, that feels restrictive, right? So let me ask you really quick, again, not rhetorical, when, when you think of community, this could be positive or negative, but hopefully mostly positive, right? Let me know. What do you guys think of when it comes to community? Anyone? Give me a shout out. Accountability. That's good. What else? Friendship. I love that. How many of you want more friends? Okay. Awesome. <laughs> Apparently no one wants friends. All right. Fellowship. We want fellowship, but we don't want friends. This message is for you. You stinking Americans, right? Um, what else? What else? What was that? I say it one more time. I'm getting. I'm 43. I can't hear. Apparently, faith. Thank you, Trace. Faith. Awesome. Support. I love that. Support. What was that? Help. I love it. I love how positive you guys are. That's exactly what community, biblical community, offers. How many of you want to get married? Amen, right? Being a part of God's family can help with that. Can I get an amen, all the single people? Um, yeah, so those are great answers, right? And that's what happens when you're planted in a local church. I do think as Americans, we've got to be honest with ourselves that um, if, we're not, if we're not careful, we can uh, kind of collude with this American idea of freedom and this relationship with community, and our understanding of space. Don't worry, I'm going to flesh all that out, hopefully. If not, I'm going to have Garrison. How many of you love Garrison? I'm calling a little G-man, right? He'll explain all that at the end of the service, so come and find him. So I want to talk about how important it is to be planted. I also want to talk about how, as Americans, we love space, and how those two, being planted, and our love for space are mutually exclusive. So in a book I just read, it's called Lessons, I love this title, Lessons in Belonging from a Church-Going Commitment Phobe. Do we have any commitment-phobic people? Maybe a few of us. Uh, the author of this book, is called, her name is Erin Lane. She, she writes about her, um, her uh, uh, issues with commitment, her issues with belonging to the church. And so she, in her book, she, she writes that she's, I think she's heading home from the gym, and she hears an interview on the radio in her car. So it's this, this kid, this, not, maybe not kid, maybe like a um, 25-year-old guy. He's in a conversation being interviewed with someone about his life, and basically the interview kind of goes on and on about all the places that he's been, right? And uh, about where he's, you know, his experiences, etc. cetera. Uh, in his words, he talks to this guy who's interviewing him, how he moves around all the time, almost every year, in his words, sometimes multiple times a year, because he moves around because he really wants to be a part of really important stuff, the stuff, in his words, that you would be proud to write about, not arrogant, but he loves to be a part of what's happening around the world, um, and he basically, in, in his words, this is what he says, or said, the minute I stop, this is like his philosophy on life, the minute I stop moving, life stops being an adventure. So he's a movement guy. Do we have any movement people? Right? You like to travel. 
You like to, you like to go places. You like, how many of you like to go swift outs, get your backpack, go for a month, right? That's so cliche. How many of you like to go to uh, ah, Mount Everest, climate? How many of you like just to go on vacation? Okay. Woo, this is the tough crowd here today. <laughs> oh, God. I know it's, I've been out of it for a while, but just kind of go with me, right? Man, we, we like, we, come on, we like to travel. Like, I remember growing up, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't psychoanalyze myself, but like in my teenage years, um, I loved driving to the airport. I just, for whatever reason, I don't like flying, but I love the airport. And I realized that the airport became a symbol of freedom and space for me, right? I didn't realize, I think we all, like, and you know, when we come to age and like we have our passage, a rite of passage, and we move into adulthood, all that kind of stuff. I think many times, I get, it's typical that we downplay our place or where we're at. But I think in general, this is kind of the sentiment. This is the vision of our understanding of freedom. So let me get back to what she's talking about. She, she basically quotes this guy, the minute I stop moving, life stops being an adventure. And then she goes on to say, and she's obviously talking about her, her phobia when it comes to commitment, I probably would have given him a, a, a high five a few years ago or five years ago. In her words, she goes, now I wonder, what if the adventure is learning to stay put? Or like, hey, like what if, because I, man, how many of you love a sense of adventure? Right, man, I love it. I love, I love moving, right? I love traveling. But what if the new adventure is learning to, to be planted, learning to take your roots, right? I'm using agrarian metaphor. It's a metaphor, people, right? And you allow God to grow your roots deep into Christ, but not just into Christ, because if you're in Christ, you're also baptized into a local body. What if we made the decision to take the long view when it comes to relationships, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to being a part of a local church, and when we go through difficult times, because we are planted, that is when, even, even when we go through troubled times, that is when the Bible tells us we experience life and life more abundantly. There's one author who, um, I, she'll, she'll remain anonymous, but she wrote a book, Holy in the Suburbs. This is what she wrote. And I think it's fascinating because I think it does capture kind of where we're, where we're all at, where, where we're all at. She says this, I measured uh, my distance from home as a marker of belonging. She goes, um, I, I went from city to city, right? L.A., how many of you love L.A., right? Okay. I uh, went to Edinburgh, San Diego. This is such a stinking tough crowd. San Diego, Salt Lake City. Right? She's talking about every place that she's been. Again, there's nothing wrong if you, if you travel, if you move around, that's totally fine. But she goes, I, I began to envision that um, my movement was um, somehow related to doing something significant for God. And then she goes on to say is that from there, I took jump to seeing my worth as associated with geography and movement. Right? So she, she understood that she was buying into, which we'll talk about here pretty soon, this uh, um, American mythology 
that uh, your worth and your value is somehow associated with freedom and space and movement and accumulating experiences that are untethered to community. Because Americans, hey, this is just how we are. We have an aversion. We've been inherited for 200 years an aversion for ossified group conformity. We don't want kings and tyrants to tell us what to do, and we don't want to be a part of a boring, ossified community where we live flattened out lives and we have no say or no individuality. This is American-styled individualism. Some of that is good. How many of you are so glad we don't live in Leave it to Beaver days? Come on, can I get an amen? Like, I'm so glad we have choices when it comes to marrying who we want. I'm glad I don't have to marry my first cousin. Can I get an amen? We don't live in the 19th century, right? So we have options. There's nothing wrong with options. I am glad for political freedom. I'm glad that we can express ourselves. But I want to talk about this shadow side of American individualism with its emphasis on freedom. In fact, when it comes to belonging, when it comes to being planted, when it comes to being rooted, all of that has been ripped up and torn apart by the powerful tides of American individualism. We have what one scholar, Robert Putman, we have the withering of, the, of community life. In fact, he goes on to say the forms of participation that have withered in our life most are described as verbs, and they're the, these three verbs, serve, work, attend. Our, our relationship with community um, is in a state of decay. Cooperative forms of behavior are um, in decline. We, we value as Americans, again, there's nothing wrong with this, we value self-expression, right? So we get on Twitter and we just speak our mind, right? We get on Facebook and we just say whatever we want to say, and I guess that's okay. Some of you just need to be a little bit more quiet. Can I get any man? High five your neighbor. High five them. All right, turn to your other neighbor and say, stop posting online. You, you guys don't even know, but I know, I know who you guys are, right? What you post, Facebook and Twitter. But here's the thing. We value as Americans, we value expressing our opinion or our beliefs. In other words, we are a nation of expressors or believers. But what's happened is that has caused a decline in participation. So we are a nation of, we want to express um, our our values, our opinions, as a way of participation rather than belong. We believe, but we no longer belong. We do not believe in working, attending, serving, planting, being rooted in a community. You can see this. Um, I, I just, uh, one pastor mentioned some research on 10 to 12-year-olds. They were asked the question um, of what their number one goal in life was and uh, they, they didn't say making money. They didn't say driving a, a Benz, right? They didn't say um, being rich. They didn't even say they wanted a lot of relationships. You know what they said? They wanted to be famous. The famous part is okay. I'm, I'm like, hey, not everyone in this world is going to be famous. If you're famous, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. David was famous. Solomon was famous. There's nothing wrong with that. Famous as an end of your life. If that's all you seek, that's wrong. But what's interesting about this study is that these 
10 to 12 year old kids that were interviewed valued in contradistinction being famous over relationship. It's funny, how many of you are, are between the ages of 12 to 37? Okay, maybe about half of you. You're going to love this. Um, they were uh, asked several different questions about what they valued. You're going to so love this, I think. Maybe not. Um, and they, these, predominantly, if you're in the ages of 12 to 37, um, they were asked the question this, sorry. Um, what would you do or would you want um, a, a, a movie uh, made about your life, essentially? They were asked that question. So how many of you, this is a better way of saying, how many of you believe that your life should be turned into a movie? 50% of those between 12 and 37 said yes to that. Again, yeah, we're, we're talking about fame, but it's interesting because that was in contradistinction to relationships. In fact, um, one group of people were asked, okay, if you could have fame and you could be recognized, what would you do? One in 12 said they would disown their family. Like nobody in here but all the other people out there would probably say that. One in nine said that they would give up the possibility of marriage if they could be famous and recognized. This one, the next one, I totally understand. One in six said they would give up having children, which I totally understand. Can I get an amen to that? So the issue is not necessarily, I don't want to, like, I'm not talking about fame. I'm talking about what we value over relationship. We value space. What's space? Space is freedom. Space, by definition, implies, I won't say by definition, but space implies unlimited freedom. We value, in three days, we're going to be talking about our Declaration of Independence, right? We're going to talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We're going to talk about freedom and freedom and freedom. But freedom, according to many Americans, is all about unlimited options, right? It's like going to a Cheesecake Factory, right? And you have a menu, and you pretty much can get anything that's ever been made in human history, Freedom, again, I'm not saying that there's necessarily nothing bad about this. What, I, what I'm trying to communicate is that if this becomes our way of life, it keeps us from being tethered to community and relationships. In fact, our habits of constant movement, right, traveling, again, there's nothing wrong with that, and our emphasis on freedom have transformed our understanding of relationships, we have been promised freedom from family, from ossified churches, from institutions that tell us what to do, from even biology. And we've been promised that we can make an evolutionary leap so we can experience human flourishing. And it's all up to ourself to do this, to engage in this project of freedom. In fact, one Supreme Court justice he wrote this a long time ago. He was talking about liberty, and this is what he said. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence. Not only existence, but meaning. You can construct your own meaning. You can also construct your own understanding of the universe and the mystery of human life. Pretty scary. One philosopher calls the age in which we live in as, as liquid modernity. We have moved from solid modernity to liquid modernity. 
which basically means we used to think of ourselves as pilgrims in search of deeper meaning. Now we see ourselves as tourists in search of multiple freedom social experiences. Again, I'm not saying this is necessarily bad, but the problem is, is that our desire for unlimited freedom has pulled us away from being placed in local churches and experiencing, being pulled away from the experience of being a part of God's family. I think things have to change. Can I get an amen? So we have talk like upward mobility. Uh, Drake, I mentioned him a lot. I, I love Drake. Maybe you don't love him. That's, that's all right. But his song, it's his anthem, right? I was at the bottom. Now I'm here, right? 19th century rhetoric was, was organized or structured around from rags to riches. You can be here. Now you can come up here if you just work hard, etc. In fact, in the words of one scholar, our culture has powerfully socialized us to believe that personal happiness and fulfillment should take precedence and priority over family and church and institutions. So this is why we have what we call switchers, right? Again, if this is you, I'm not trying to judge you. I'm just trying to give a description of where a lot of people are at. Switchers are those that move from church to church to church trying to find the perfect service, right? They live for the moment. They consume church. In fact, studies that have just come out have said this, that 96% of church growth is church transfer growth. We now know that every 18 months, the average Christian switches churches. We know now that the average churchgoer attends service only one time a month. This is our American way of life. Freedom, unlimited freedom, and our emphasis on freedom and space has crept into the church. In fact, American Christians prefer a variety of church experiences rather than getting the most out of one single church. Wow. They think that spiritual enlightenment comes from diligence in discovery or the discovery process, right? They've privatized their relationship with Jesus. It's just about Jesus and me and my personal happiness. And they've prioritized that over commitment to a community and participating with the family of God. In fact, many people view religion and church as a community that is to be consumed. We come and we don't play Bethel, so we're out, right? Or they didn't play Hillsong, so I didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel the, the Holy Ghost today, right? Or kids ministry, they didn't emphasize this. Or the pastor didn't, didn't make me feel good today. He talked a lot about American consumerism, right? And I left, and I'm like, I don't know if I want to go back. We live by consumption. We live by, okay, I'm going to choose a church based on what I think I need. Again, there's nothing wrong with that, but you can't build a New Testament church on consumption. I don't know about you, but I am serious about this, especially this summer, much more than this summer, but we'll talk about this summer, building for the kingdom of God. I am serious about being a people, an agency where God works through us, loving our neighbor, loving people in this city, 
right? I am serious about being a person where the Holy Spirit comes on my life, empowers me to love people, to serve people, to be a part of a community doing life together. That's what I'm serious about. But you can't, you can't build a New Testament church on consumption. Next week we're going to talk about preference. You can't do it on preference, preference alone. Rather, the New Testament church was built on people that radically committed their very lives to the kingdom of God. So let me just say this really quick. This is a summons message. I'm summoning everyone in this room today to... Um, Make a commitment, we'll say it like this, to make a commitment to give yourself away to a bigger story than what money, power, and success can offer. Today's a summons. This isn't a summons that we can't travel anymore, we can't go on vacay, we can't go to Maui, we can't go to Disneyland, we can't whatever, we can't move, we can't, we can't drive a car anymore, right? It's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is understanding that we are going to rebel against mainstream culture where we devalue being a part of a community, where we become untethered to relationships, where we value our personal happiness and fulfillment and getting a spiritual experience over learning to give our lives away. I am passionate and I'm really tired here this morning, but, but go with me. I am passionate about building a community of people that will learn to surrender their lives to the story of Jesus. Because the ultimate end of life is not space. It's not the pursuit of money, power, success, big home, all that kind of stuff. If you have that, that's grace. Great. It's grace too. Yeah, sure. Whatever. That's great, but hey, if that's the end of your life, if that's what you're living for, and you come to church on the side, right, and you get a good feel, you kind of know the Christian lingo, but you're really untethered, you really don't belong on a Sunday morning, you come and you listen to a message, but you're not really involved in community and small groups and learning to serve and learning to work and learning to contribute and learning to be a part of something bigger than yourself, I guarantee that, that the, the lie, the lie that money, power, and success will give, bring fulfillment to you will be exposed sooner or later. It's an empty promise. Jesus said, if you want to find your life, you have to give it away. And this is where we come to Genesis chapter 2. The whole point of Genesis chapter 2 is that God did not offer Adam and then Eve space. We find creation is an unfinished project, right? I love what, God is totally into what one scholar calls collaborative eschatology. So God wants partners. God is not going to make unilateral decisions to bring creation into flourishing. He creates Adam and he creates Eve and he wants to partner with male and female to bring his wise and good and loving stewardship into the planet. So he doesn't offer unlimited options. He actually restricts them. In other words, he gives them a place. There's a double emphasis in Genesis chapter 2. What does God offer Adam? He offers them a place in the garden. It says that God put him 
in the garden, placed him in the garden. Now here's the, here's the tricky thing, is that um, Hasatan, who we find out later in the Old Testament, even into the New Testament, is this, this quasi-personal figure that is opposed to God's plan. Hasatan, or the Satan, arrives on the scene in Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve have been placed to work the guard to bring it into flourishing. And he comes with this unique temptation. And this unique temptation is, it's pretty simple, it's unlimited freedom. Not only unlimited freedom, but it's the temptation to redefine what's good and evil. It's to live by your own taste, in other words. He says, hey, Eve, um, did God really say that? Because, man, if, if you do it this way, right, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, guess what's going to happen, right? You're gonna, your eyes are going to be open, and you're going you're gonna to be like God. That's the primal sin. That's what drives the human heart apart from Jesus. Is this desire for options? Is this desire for absolute autonomy? Is this desire for freedom and space? I want to do whatever I want to do. And guess what happens? They believe the lie that was offered to them. And in the last few verses that we talked about, what happened to their freedom, their precious freedom, their desire to be like God, their desire to have no constraints, no limitations, to be placeless, what does that lead them to? It leads them to anxiety. It leads to absolute fear and alienation and despair. This is exactly what is happening in our nation. I've mentioned this over and over and over, but people are dying from loneliness and obviously suicide and despair and depression. It's because we have believed in this national myth that we are self-sufficient, we have unlimited options, we can figure it out apart from God, we don't have to be a part of community. In fact, community is something that I choose. The most important thing is what I believe to be true for myself. And it's led to anxiety. But here's the thing, and some of you, I just feel like I need to say this, some of us have, I think we all have in our lives, have believed the lie that space is better than place. Man, I believed it growing up in Boise. I wanted to get out of Boise, right? I wanted to fly away. I wanted, I wanted movement. I wanted, I wanted freedom. If we're not careful, we can continue to buy into this lie that um, the grass is always greener on the other side. In fact, Pastor Ken will tell you this over and over and over. The grass is never greener on the other side. The grass is always greener where you stink and water it. Here's the thing. Place, yes, restricts and constrains us. Why? Because you and I are creatures. We are restricted in body, in space, and time. Right? To think otherwise is to assume that somehow we're on the same level as God. And to assume that is to live a life of anxiety because you will never figure everything out. In other words, we need each other. I, I just know that I would not have been able to negotiate the difficult seasons in my life if it wasn't for many people in this room. If I didn't have, if I wasn't tethered to this local church, 
If I didn't grow up for 30 years, I think the best decision that I, am I preaching too hard? I think the best decision that I have ever made, I've made a lot of dumb decisions. When I was five, I made a decision to be a Cowboys fan, okay? I have regretted that ever since. We all have made bad decisions. I know I've made a lot of bad decisions, but I think the best decision that I ever made was making the decision that even though I want to get out, even though some things don't make sense, even though I can't figure out my life and it would just be better to like go somewhere, it might be better to leave, it might be better to go to that university, I made a decision at the age of 19, I'm going to stay put in this local church. I'm going to serve even when it doesn't make sense. I'm going to love people even when they betray me. Even when my mentor after mentor after mentor goes from this place to this place and lies or betrays me, I made a decision that I am going to serve God together in this local church. And I believed. And I believed that I would grow in wisdom. And I, I, I'm convinced and this, is, and this goes without saying, I wouldn't have met my wife if it wasn't for this local church. I wouldn't have my five, soon to be seven beautiful kids without this local church. And no more, in Jesus' name. Right? Like, I, I don't, and I'm, being, I'm, not, I'm not trying to exaggerate this. There have been very difficult seasons that if it wasn't for mentors and pastors and people like you that I've known for a long time who have been planted and rooted, I don't think I would have been able to make it. My sense of purpose and vision when it comes to the kingdom of God has been profoundly shaped by being in relationship with many of you. And that's what I want for everyone in this room. I want you to understand the value of place over space. In fact, the greatest freedom that you can ever experience is by being planted. I know the agrarian metaphor can get lost on us, but the Bible's very clear from Psalm 92, I want to read this, that being planted is how you flourish. Psalm 92 says this, I think Pastor Ken mentioned this last week, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted. Everyone say planted. They're planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They're ever full of sap and green, verse 15, to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. I mean, it's just simple. So when it comes to horticulture and, and gardens and growing stuff, I'm a ding-dong, guys. I don't know a lot. But I know one thing, that if you keep on taking plants and trees and uprooting them and trying to plant them back in different soil, those trees will inevitably die. You cannot grow. You cannot flourish. You cannot experience personal fulfillment. You cannot have that all that God has for you if you're not planted like a tree. Jeremiah 17, 7 through 8 says this. I love this. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green 
and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. There's a case that those who are planted, yeah, at times we feel anxiety, but we're able to live the non-anxious life because we're planted. We're not going from one experience to the next. We're, we're planted in relationship and we're learning to do life together and there is strength in that. Next week I'll talk more about that. But let me just say this as we close. Jeremiah 32, 36 through 41. It gives us this beautiful picture of God who plants us. He's a farmer. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city which you say, it is given in the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Verse 37. Do we have verse 37? Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place. Everyone say place. And I will make them dwell in safety. Behold, and they shall be my people. Go back to verse 38. Media team, you guys are amazing. And they shall be my people, and I mean that in a good way. I am the one that's tricking them out. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I just love that. And I will give them one heart. How many of you want that? And one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. We continue verse 40, I believe it is. I will make them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. And we close here with this verse. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them. Everyone would say plant. I will plant them in this land in, in faithfulness with all my heart and my soul. Okay, so God, yes, he created space, but he values and prioritizes place over space. Being planted is how you flourish. Being and doing life together as you follow Jesus is absolutely essential if you want all that God has for you. In the words of one scholar, Joseph Hellerman, spiritual formation takes place primarily in the context of community. He goes on to say, people who stay grow. People who stay flourish. People who stay and are planted and are rooted, even when things get difficult, that is the man, that is the woman who God blesses. People are planted, he continues, in community, right? They also grow. And then he says this, people who do not stay, but they leave and they surf and they go from church to church to church, accumulating experience after experience, they do not grow. He calls the biggest sin of our generation spiritual wanderlust, where we move from church to church trying to find the right place curated for our tastes. God has called us to live and to do life in one place. Amen. This is the biblical definition of freedom. It's to plant yourself in one local place, do life together. And as you, by the grace of God, learn to serve and love each other, even people you don't like, even navigating relational conflict, even being okay with maybe if the sermon series isn't your cup of tea, or maybe the worship doesn't kind of fit, like, ah, I wish we did something else, right? If you can make a commitment to being planted no matter what and learn to give your life away. I guarantee you, 
you will experience so much life, so much peace. In fact, this is my definition of joy. Being planted in God's family and serving God's family. And when you do that year in and year out, and after a decade or two, as you look back on your life, you will not for one moment be disappointed at how God blessed you and your family. What the world needs is more planted people. The world needs rooted, solid people who are giving their lives away to people. That's what the community that I want to see, this is my vision, that I want to see material, materialize in this church. Amen.